and welcome to our episode of The Extras, where we tackle questions that have come through uh, on the Sunday from our sermon. So today I'm joined by a guest who is not a stranger to me. So do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, uh, my name's Lachlan, married to Candy. So you get a special kind of home episode of The Extras this week. Yeah, uh, we're filming at our place. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I had the privilege of being able to work on and speak on Ecclesiastes 9 over the past week. Uh, so yeah, in, excited to be here today. Where did you speak at? I was over at North Rocks and at Afternoon Church. Yes, and unfortunately Jack um, is no longer part of our staff team. Sad to see him go. He's busily preparing for his move to the UK, which is quite imminent. And so I'm joined by Lachlan here. We've got a question from last week's sermon on Ecclesiastes 5.19. So I thought we'll start with that before we launch into the one from the Sunday just then. So Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. This is a question about what is the difference between enjoying what God has given us and self-indulgence. If God gives wealth to some, is it okay and good for those who are wealthy to enjoy and spend it? So, for example, on luxury goods, can we enjoy a nice car and a nice house to the glory of God? Or is that just self-indulgent? How can we enjoy wealth and be generous? And yeah, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really important question. Uh, I had a really good time a few years ago. Uh, I, I set myself the goal to go, I want to think about wealth. This was, yeah, this was after we got married and I am more of a spender and you're more of a saver. So we're trying to figure things out. That anyway, wasn't you, the pure driving yes. motive of it. It was just, I like to set myself something each year to try to grow in. And yes. I'd had questions around money for a while. So I wanted to read deeply on it. And yeah, it's, it's really, I'm glad someone's asking this. We want to be thinking through how do we use money? How do we enjoy money? How do we live in a world that is saturated by money and goods Uh, There's a few different parts to the question here. And I think as we jump into the Old Testament first with Ecclesiastes, to some degree, there's an expectation uh, that the community of Israel will have some differing levels of wealth amongst them. Some people's land will prosper and they'll have a good crop and whatever. And and there's a goodness to them enjoying that. Uh, At the same time in the Old Testament, you definitely get... God's people being critiqued for indulgence, the indulgence of some to the detriment and oppression of others. Mm. Uh, So my favorite book in the Old Testament is the book of Isaiah. uh, And I think of a passage there, Isaiah 5, amongst the list of woes on God's people, the judgment on God's people. uh, God says, woe to those who add house to house and field to field until there's no one left and you alone are in the land. Mm. Uh, which just makes me think of the property crisis today in Sydney and the rental market and all that squeezing out. Uh, But there's a critique of people in Old Testament Israel that are just amassing their own wealth to the detriment of others. That's not something that was meant to happen. Uh, Elsewhere in those Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, people are critiqued for wearing their jewelry around and just showing off their wealth when there are others who don't have food to eat. Mm. And so... Definitely, even within the Old Testament picture, there's not meant to be this self-indulgence of some while others go hungry and and die. That's not the way God wanted things to be within Israel. So whatever Ecclesiastes 5 is saying, it's it's 
not uh, overruling or overriding the words of God's prophets yes. who critiqued that self-indulgence. Uh, and, and I think there's some helpfulness for us to hear those critiques in the prophets of Isaiah and Amos as well, another one that kind of hammers home that point. Um, you also had another point before we were talking about enjoyment and you were saying you had a good discussion in your growth group about that? Yeah, so I think as you come through into the, well, no, even sticking in the Old Testament there, um, the enjoyment language of Ecclesiastes, I think, is not driving us to go, okay, I have to find the nicest delicacies in the world and enjoy those things, and that's where I get enjoyment in food and drink. It's not kind of like sort of searching as if for a beat, like the enjoyment is the beacon, and you're just kind of, searching in your life and trying to home in on that yeah yeah let's go get the caviar let's get the most expensive whiskey and only then will i enjoy food and drink no i think ecclesiastes is saying enjoy the bit of bread that's before you if that's what you've got to eat still find joy in that moment Mm. find the joy in the simple things that you can Uh, and i think that's what the new testament points us to as well and i think in verse 19 right it says when god gives someone wealth and possession and the ability to enjoy them, mm. enjoy them. Like mm. it's it's not saying go and grab as much wealth and possession as mm. you can so you can enjoy your life. Mm. That's a different logic there. Mm. It's mm. what God gives you, give thanks to him and mm. enjoy them. So there is, yeah. Mm. Mm. So you were going on about the New Testament. Do you want to continue talking about that? Well, I think it's just, it's important that we, we do see how Jesus has not, so, not necessarily shifted things, but... There's lots in the New Testament about wealth and about the way we're to relate to that and things like luxury, indulgence. Um, I I wish there was a line in the sand that yeah. we could go on this side is greed and on the other side is not greed. That would be nice and easy. Uh, sadly, that line's not in the Bible. Um, but the grain of the New Testament instruction to Christians pushes towards much more generosity than self-indulgence. Uh, and there are all sorts of places we could see that. I was thinking of this, the story that Jesus tells of the rich fool who has a bumper crop one year and gets the wealth in and he goes, I'm going to take it easy, sit back, enjoy myself. Um, and Jesus critiques that mentality and goes, you fool, this very night your life will be taken from you. And the conclusion of the story is this is how it will be with those who store up treasure for themselves rather than being rich towards God. Mm. Uh, and I, I just wonder how much that mentality is what drives our self-indulgence today. We're storing up for ourselves rather than being rich towards God. And Jesus is saying, you might have had a bumper crop. You know, Ecclesiastes language, God's given you wealth. Mm. Don't just sit back and enjoy that. You know, be rich towards God. As Timothy is encouraged, um, instruct the rich in this age to be generous, to be rich in good works, to give lots away. Um, there's so many New Testament passages we could go to. Uh, like I said, I did a bit of reading on this a few years ago and was quite convicted and challenged. Uh, I don't know, I think of 2 Corinthians 8 as one that's just worth bearing in mind where Christ is the example for our generosity. And the way it's described, Christ, though he was rich, became poor for your sake so that you by his poverty might become rich. Um, it's a beautiful way of phrasing that, but it doesn't say Christ being rich gave a little bit of his riches. Uh, It says Christ became poor 
Like there's an extreme shift there of generosity. And so I think that that's the grain of the New Testament. Away from self-indulgence towards generosity. More that we could say on that, but yeah, and looks we are like to we should be, be moving on. Yeah, we are to be like Christ. Mm. Um, and so when we see Christ and his generosity, it's very radical. Mm. It's a type of giving that's unprecedented to mm. leave your heavenly home for the sake of your enemies, mm. to bring them back to God mm. by giving up your own life. So it doesn't get more radical than that. Mm. So moving on to this week's sermon. This week we looked at chapter 9. So I know for North Rocks and for Afternoon Church, we went through the whole chapter of chapter 9. For Morning Church and Night Church, I think Jack went into sort of more about verses 1 to 10 about death. Lachlan, do you want to summarize for us your big idea for what you had? For the yeah, sermon? sure. Uh, so looking from verse 1 to 16 of chapter 9, we saw that life is unfair and then you die. Mm. Uh, it was pretty blunt. I think it's a pretty blunt passage. We spent a bit of time talking about the unfairness of life that, you know, you don't necessarily get what you deserve for your hard work. Nothing's guaranteed. The world doesn't work as a nice, neat um, effort and then consequence. I think that was... You see that, thing. yeah. You see that in verse eleven, don't you? Yeah. You know, the race is not to the swift, nor battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise. Mm. Then it keeps going, goes. Time and chance happen to them all. Mm. And then you, as you mentioned, then we die. So we've got a bunch of questions about death. We've got um, talking about death. Is death? So Jack also mentioned this. It talked about it as an unnatural consequence. So we have a question here about how can it be unnatural if it's actually a fact that is controlled by God? Because we know God is sovereign. So how is death unnatural? Yeah, I, I think the language of unnatural for me, it, it comes back to the Genesis narrative where when humanity is first created, uh, we're created, it seems, to live forever with God. Genesis 1 and 2, that's the picture. There's access to the tree of life. So I take it our life as created humanity was always contingent. Yeah, we so it's needed like... the food of the tree of life. It wasn't yeah. naturally like just in, built into us that we're living forever. But we, we had access to that. And we were designed to live forever with God. Mm. But then after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, cast out from the garden, cursed with death, it's not the way things were created to be. And so in that sense, it's unnatural. Is that yeah, but is it God is still in control of that? Totally. So how does God use that? How does God use that? Uh, I'm not too sure which angle this question is coming from when when asking that. It, on the one hand, um, you know, are we are we heading to the Romans eight kind of language of God works all things together for the good of those who love mm. Him, and that even in the midst of a world of death. You know, that might be God's loudspeaker of suffering that wakes some up to know Jesus. Yeah. I don't know if that's the angle yeah. of this question. De death is horrible. Uh, experiencing the death of those that we love is horrible. Um, so I don't want to be frivolous in talking about that. And yeah. if that's where this is coming from, you know, we don't want to just jokingly and jovially to, like death death is terrible yeah I guess maybe the question is saying if God is sovereign what is his intentionality behind death right there must be some purpose in it if he allows that to happen and I guess the way I think about it is that 
first and foremost, primarily, death in the Bible is talked about as punishment. Yeah, it's but judgment. The, yeah, it's judgment. The soul who sins shall mm. die. Mm. So we see this in Ezekiel, I believe, chapter 18. We, mm. we see this in terms of the garden and the warning that God gives to Adam and Eve um, about Adam, you know, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Mm. And so it's the God use it as a punishment for our sin. And that's why it's so terrible. Um, and we shouldn't kind of take that lightly. Second thing about death, someone here, uh, again, kind of honed in on talking about it as an unnatural consequence and a question, couldn't death actually be a gift? So if we didn't die, we'd rebelled against God, wouldn't our body just keep on decaying? So death itself, isn't it a kind of mercy? Yeah, it's interesting to ponder. I, I take it from Genesis that, uh, the decay of the human body is part and parcel of what death means. So that prior to Adam and Eve's rebellion, our body would not have decayed in all the ways we're about to see in the last couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, that great poetic yeah. description of the decay of our bodies. I don't think that's uh, something that is separate from the judgment of death. I think that's just the long and slow protracted death. Yes. That we're walking So towards. sickness and death are a package together. Yeah. And so it's not as if death itself is a mercy yeah. because of sickness. It's that yeah. sickness and death are bound together. I, as I, and I, I don't want to be frivolous again, but um, as I hear this question, it makes me think of that Pirates of the Caribbean uh, image where there's the sailors that have been confined oh, to just yeah. decay on. Yeah, they were, under that, the they were under that. They were under the curse. Yeah. Black Pearl, is it? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. The the one that they they are they're not dead, but their bodies have decayed and they yes. just have. And was it by the moonlight? They just look like skeletons. Yeah. Or I don't yeah, remember yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah. So I don't think that's what would have happened to <laughs> us. Like there's some decay without death. I think yes. death is the decay, yeah. and it's a. a continuum of movement mm. towards that and death i don't think it's ever portrayed in the bible as an act of mercy death is an act of justice mm. in us getting what we deserve mm. Um, mm. whereas salvation is an act mm. of god's mercy mm. and so yeah uh we've got another one on death uh, this one i'm not entirely sure where this question is coming from it's saying why is death unpredictable um i guess yeah, well, what do you think about that? I'm not entirely sure. I mean, on one hand, I just kind of want to say it's unpredictable because we don't control it. God does. Um, yeah. That's kind of the very simple answer, but I'm not entirely sure. Maybe pastorally, what's behind the question? Lachlan, yeah. any thoughts? It, it is. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what angle this question's coming from. Um, but it, it brings to mind something I was thinking earlier in the question about uh, death being natural or unnatural, that... The reality of death as judgment is that all of us deserve to be dead right now. Mm. Uh, it is an act of God's mercy that he continues to give us life in this world. Yeah. And so the way the Bible talks about it in a few different passages is that God can withdraw that life from us at any moment that he chooses well we see that in genesis don't we in terms of god making people's lives shorter yeah yeah, yeah. you know and the my, language my... of genesis 6 my spirit will not endure with them forever yeah uh, our, our life is a gift from god it's on loan from god in a sense and god has the right to withdraw that whenever he likes and so 
the unpredictable nature of death is kind of in the mind of God's great plan that we don't have access to. When will he take that life back to be with him? We, we don't know. Mm. Uh, and that does mean that sometimes people live long lives and other times death comes in much sooner than we would expect and want and tragic accidents happen and um, all sorts of things that are unpredictable about death in our world. Mm. And the word tragedy is appropriate for that. You know, it, we want to grieve that. We want to say that this is a horrible way to be. Mm. Uh, and then we want to be so thankful that we know God who has an answer to death and that death for us as Christians is not the end, uh, but there's eternal pleasure at God's right hand to be enjoyed. Um, there's a few things around the unpredictableness mm. of death. And just to segue a little bit as well, one of the interesting or kind of harder to digest part of the Bible was also the fact that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they did die because they were separated from God. Mm. And so even in Ephesians, we're told that we are already dead in our sin. Mm. And so we have already died in the sense that we are cut off from God, but God still gives us life that's contingent mm. on him as we mm. live. Mm. So there's this a double mm. meaning in the Bible on death. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's by and by, not really what the question's asking. Moving on to talking about um, this uh, one last question on death. Oh wait, no, two last questions on death. Uh, one is on Sheol. What's the deal with Sheol? Is it hell? Is it heaven? Is it something else? What is the realm of the dead? Yeah, this is uh, helpful to press into, and I wish we'd had time on Sunday to do it. Um, part of the reason I didn't is because the NIV, so if you're reading the New International Version... Uh, it talks th- about Hades, doesn't it? No, it right? talks about the realm of the dead. So it's Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. Mm. Uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your strength because there is no work, planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. So I'm reading the Christian Standard Bible there. They use the word Sheol. ESV uses Sheol as well. Yeah, whereas the NIV just goes realm of the dead, Mm. Um, which is understandable because Sheol is not not an English word. We've just taken the Hebrew word and we say it in English. Uh, So (laughs) it's it's not really translated at that point. It's translating the sound of a word rather than the meaning. Yeah. Um, so what what is that place? Look, the Old Testament has a few things to say about it. Uh, much of the time, it sounds like it's purely referring to the physical reality of a grave. Yeah. Uh, and that you know, much of the time, you might you might be led to think there's death, and then that's the end of people's existence. Nothing more to come. Uh, it could be that. Many passages, Sheol, sounds like that. There are a couple where it sounds a little bit different. So Isaiah, again, um, can see why I love Isaiah. It just has so much to teach us. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 9, has a reference to Sheol. Uh, This is a passage of judgment on the king of Babylon. Mm. And verse 9 says, Sheol below is eager to greet your coming, stirring up the spirits of the departed for you, all the rulers of the earth, making all the kings of the nations rise from their thrones. Um, That makes it sound like Sheol is a place where people continue to exist in some fashion, Uh, perhaps a sleepy existence. Mm. So it it might even be a place where there there are people existing or spirits existing, but they're asleep. Uh, And you see that language carry through even into modern day. Yeah. 
or into the euphemisms of the New Testament where death is referred to as people who are asleep. Yes. And the position in the grave, the lying down, similar yes. to a sleeping thing. Um, some Jewish uh, rabbis later on actually came to think of our nightly sleep as a small form of death. And so, anyway, that's a tangent. We don't need yeah. to go into that. Uh, but Sheol could be pictured as this sleepy place. One one story that drives me towards saying that there is some kind of existence there is the narrative in 1 Samuel 28. Um, What's in that narrative? Fascinating little story. So this is the downfall of King Saul. Uh, and Saul doesn't want to kind of lose his position as king. He's trying to cling on to it, but God's ripped it from him. Samuel, the prophet at this stage, has died. Uh, but Saul goes and finds a necromancer to draw Samuel back up from the dead. Mm. And 1 Samuel 28 details that and shows a conversation between Saul and the dead Samuel. Yes. Uh, Samuel's not too happy about being brought back from the grave. Um, he does make it sound like, you know, he's been woken up and didn't want to be. Um, where, does he, where does it sound like that? So I'm just having a look. Oh, it's the language of verse 15 there. Why have you disturbed me yeah. by bringing me up? Yeah, okay, I see. There's a disruption. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like Samuel was somewhere. Um, he's been brought back up. It sounds like he's still conscious, like he's got, you know, thoughts and words. And yeah, 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 yeah. So that, for me, is one place that makes me go, okay, Sheol uh, is the place where everyone in the Old Testament, when they died, that's where they went. Yeah. Um, it's it's there's not too much going on there there's no separation of the righteous and the wicked it's everyone's going to the same place mm. uh i think that's probably all to say at that stage of that question yeah. um what about i'm just kind of tangenting a little bit again maybe but what about during the transfiguration where moses and elijah yeah. are there next to jesus yeah yeah, yeah. They've, Could they be they've come from, from somewhere yeah come from somewhere yeah yep. and it, it doesn't seem i mean we don't know i guess but you know are they in corporal form there it's unclear mm. they disappear by the end mm. um, so yeah some thoughts there on sheol the um, one thing i want to yeah. add to that is just to go um sheol in the old testament we now have a different situation in the new testament since christ has been raised mm. so when we die now as Christians, we don't go to Sheol, I wouldn't say. Where do we go to? We go to be with Christ. Yes. Uh, that's Paul's language in Philippians 1. And that's what makes him say, to, to die is gain. It's better by far. I want to depart and be with Christ. Yeah. Uh, and so... We also get that with the thief on the cross. Yeah. The, the, you know, the one yeah. who's like, Jesus says, today you'll yeah. be with me. Yeah. Some of the pictures of Revelation as well. Mm. Uh, so we... Yeah, our existence after death now looks a little bit different to what the Old Testament picture was, even while we still wait for that final judgment day mm. um, when the new heavens and the new earth will be created and will be resurrected to new bodies. So yeah. a few different stages along that journey. Yeah. Um, last question on death, and in particular, this is also kind of the flavor of what happens after death. It's a bit of a spicy question. Um, what does the Bible have to say about Conscious torment in hell versus annihilism. Mm. First of all, can you explain to us what those two terms are? What are we talking about here? So it's a question in, about uh, the judgment side of that judgment day. So we know and trust that as Christians, 
on the day when uh, Christ returns, we'll be going off to eternal pleasure and a new creation. But what of those who have not trusted in Christ? Will they be consciously, so with an active mind, will they be consciously experiencing torment and punishment mm. for all eternity? Or will there come a time where their consciousness winks out and they simply cease to exist? Um, it's a good question to ponder. I think most of the time when I've engaged with this question, it's been from an angle of people finding it hard to accept that God would condemn people to an eternity of conscious punishment. Yeah. It's the, uh, it's the horror of it. And it's also, yeah. I mean, some people question, I've heard people say before, you know, how can God punish us eternally for something mm. that we've done in a period of time, in a mm. limited life? Mm. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I want to say it is a horrible thought. Uh, I, I think either side of this is a horrible thought. Whatever we say about hell, hell is a horrible place. Um you don't want to go there. You don't want to see other people go there. Mm. And it ought to grieve us. It's not inappropriate if we are brought to tears and brought to our knees in prayer and pleading like that. The idea of hell is horrific. Yeah. I mean, Paul would even say he'd rather be cut off from God and go into that than to see his fellow Israelites face that kind of fate. Um, Which is a huge thought a, in itself. Yeah, yeah, but he was so terrified, I guess, of this happening to the people that he people. loved. Yeah, and that that ought to be something that worries us. And I also think when you know the Bible says, "Seek first the kingdom of God and mm. His righteousness," telling us not to worry about earthly mm. things. When we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, the anxiety for the churches, the anxiety for wanting people to be saved, it, it ought to actually keep us mm. awake night sometimes mm. so mm. and it did for Paul kept mm. him awake yeah. gave him sleepless nights Jesus says better to cut off your hand and enter into life maimed than with two hands go into the fire of hell yeah or pluck out your eye and you know the graphic images of the kind of pain that we might put ourselves through now to avoid that uh, end point so Wherever we land on this question, I don't think we can get away from hell being a horrible place. Mm. I think we need to maintain that. And that should be driving us to prayer and to the proclamation of Jesus. Mm. Um, there's no escaping that biblically. Uh, but should we circle back and try to answer yeah, the question? Yes, Is that we should. Enough? Yes. So, yeah. So I guess you're trying to tap into what's behind the questions that often maybe we want to say one or the other because we want to say analysm is more merciful, mm. less painful, less horrible. Mm. But actually, mm. we shouldn't try to run away from the fact that hell is terrible, mm. whichever way you land. I mean, yeah. is absolute destruction actually even better? Um, I mean, it, it seems to be better in some people's minds, but they yes. cease to exist. So. Anyways, that either way we need to acknowledge yeah. it's horrible and yeah. face up to that and not try to run away from that. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, the Westminster Confession, which is a good kind of historical document of Christian faith, uh, the the way they frame their answer to this, um, it's in Article or Chapter Thirty Two. Uh, For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who do not know God 
and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So they answer on the side of eternal torment mm. and that has been the kind of orthodox That has view. been the answer, I think, for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. Um, the strongest biblical argument, I think, towards that comes in a passage like Matthew 25 where Jesus is talking about Judgment Day. Yeah. Uh, and there's a parallel in verse 46 of the righteous who will go to eternal life and the unrighteous who will go to eternal punishment. Um, and the way those two options are paralleled yeah. makes you think that the eternality, the eternal word, has to be parallel in both sides. Yeah. So if we say it's not eternal punishment, in what sense can we say life itself is eternal? Yes. So if we're going to say we're going to be in heaven and it's going to be eternal life and not just going to wink out, mm. then we'll have to say Jesus is stating the same thing for the eternal punishment. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the strongest argument. Um, I say it that way because I do... Uh, so my, my default is to stick with Westminster and go, that's, um, that's what the Bible's teaching. Uh, there are some parts of the New Testament that might push you in a different direction. I think it's worth yeah. being aware of that and being honest about that and having some space to think on this while still maintaining that you know, it, hell will be horrible. So you get other places that talk about destruction. Um, so Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus says, Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Mm. Now, we used to destruction, meaning the ceasing of, like, it's, it's destroyed. There yeah. is nothing left after something has been destroyed. Uh, or at least it's not in the right pieces. It can't function. It's, yeah. Um, or 2 Thessalonians 1 uses that language of eternal destruction. Mm. Uh, destruction again, and the eternal in that sense could be that the evidence of the destruction lasts for eternity. Yeah. So that there's visible evidence of judgment having taken place, but the recipients of that judgment no longer exist. So the language of destruction could point you in an annihilation direction. Um, at North Rocks and Afternoon Church, we landed on Sunday in Revelation 20. And I think there you see both sides of this language. Uh, so Revelation 20 verse 10, you get the devil who deceived people was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Mm. That's pretty clear. As far as the devil is concerned, eternal torment. Yes. Day and night, forever and ever. Then it goes on down to verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Uh, when I think about death and Hades and the imagery that's going on there, I think that's saying death and Hades cease to exist. Yes. Um, and then verse 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So does that mean they cease to exist at that point? Could be. So there's both sides here in Scripture. There is something to wrestle with. But I come back to that Matthew 25 and go, you know, the strongest argument towards eternal punishment is that parallel and so maybe these passages that talk about destruction uh, aren't pointing in an annihilation direction yeah and it's difficult isn't it because you get imageries in revelation that sometimes it's quite hard to make sense of you've got darkness 
but you've also got fire. Yeah. And we never see fire in darkness because fire always emits light. So it's quite hard sometimes to pin down exactly what those Im- images are helping us to, how we can find parallels of that in our experience in life. Yeah, but all of those images are pointing towards something that is horrible to experience mm. that we don't want to see anyone go to. And, uh, you know, Jesus, when he talks about this, often will say that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, uh, where the worm does not die. People don't want to be there. It, it's, there's a, and there is no second chance at that point either. I think that's something that needs to be said, uh, that this life is the opportunity that we have to respond to Christ. This is, this is the moment. This is the day of salvation. Once Jesus returns, once we die, no second chance. This is it. And when we sit with that fact, it makes us consider what Jesus has done and makes us appreciate what he's done so mm. much more and appreciate the mandate to share the gospel mm. so much more. When we, mm. when we look at the reality in the face and be sober-minded about the time we're in, and Jesus and what he's actually done, it makes us thankful and also makes us realize how important this time is to actually reach out with mm. the gospel so mm. other pe- people can enjoy what we have yeah. enjoyed. Mm. There's a book that I found quite helpful on this back when I was a younger adult. Um, I think it's still in print. It's called A Raising Hell. Mm. Uh, it's written by both Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Now, Francis Chan has... He's saying some things nowadays that I wouldn't agree with. I think he's gone off the rails a little bit. Uh, but at this point, he was writing this book in response to Robert Bell. I don't know mm, if you remember that no. Rob Bell's name. Well, he's, I, yeah, he's, I don't know. He's yeah. come into disrepute now, but, you know, he was the pastor that uh, Oprah Winfrey liked. And <laughs> going, we're stepping back to a different age. He wrote a book all about universalism. Yeah. So he was trying to say, hey, the Bible actually teaches that there is a second chance to respond to Jesus after death. And at that point, maybe everyone will be saved. Uh that book was called Love Wins, I think. Yeah. Um, and so Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle wrote in response to that. What I found really helpful about their book is it details all the biblical passages about mm. hell. So you'll get access to all the biblical data. But it's written with such a, um, a personal grappling with what it means to believe in hell. Mm. There's an honesty in the way it's written about it, you know, I wish this weren't true. I wish there was some other way. I, he, he talks about sitting in Starbucks as he writes and seeing all the people around him and thinking, what, what do I do as I'm reading these passages on hell and I'm seeing these people lined up for their coffee? Should I stop writing? Should I go tell them about Jesus? But, yeah. uh, so it was, it was written with such a helpful tone, even as it grappled with all of the passages um, and a great honesty in responding to that view of universalism mm. so that I, I would commend that book i think raising hell going back to ecclesiastes chapter 9 we're looking at um, chapter 9 verse 7 it says god has already approved what you do now this question says the use of the word approved sounds strange what are the nuances of its use here it does sound strange and i am not yet satisfied that i understand that phrase uh, as I wrestled with it, I found two options that people seemed to commend. Uh, one option was to limit the audience of Ecclesiastes at this point and say that who this is being written to are righteous people. Mm. 
And so, you know, to the righteous person, go enjoy life. God's accepted your works. You are favoured. Your righteousness, great. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that we can limit the audience down in that way. Seems a bit strange to just say that all of a sudden. It, it could be. I, I mean, it it is a canonical book of the Bible. It might yeah. be written within Israel. You don't get too much of a critique of unrighteousness like you do in the prophets. Um, so, you know, that's one solution. Yeah. Uh, chatting to some people at church, that, that was where they landed in growth groups on okay. this. Uh, a second one was to limit the scope of the approval or the, so the acceptance word approving it's, it's that like, kind of language yeah. take pleasure in yeah um, and so it could just be as one commentator said that god approves of your eating and your drinking yeah those are the works that he approves of if you are doing them at this stage um, i don't find that one compelling cuz the word for work there or works that's been a really common word throughout Ecclesiastes. Lots has been said about your works under the sun, your works in this life. Uh, so the, the approval word, this is the only time it's used in Ecclesiastes, but the works word has been used lots to refer mm. to more than just eating and drinking. Um, so those were the two options I could find. I didn't find either particularly satisfying. The, the closest I could get, I think, is that the language of approval or acceptance um, is that God has accepted your works to the extent that he has allowed your life to continue at this stage. So the common yes. grace of you've got food on the table, you've got drink to enjoy, that must mean to some degree God is pleased with you because he is giving you these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that comes back to our thought earlier that all of us deserve to die right now. And it's that God is just extending our life by his grace, by his mercy. And the teacher, remember, is just doing wisdom. He's looking out at the world, observing what he can see. He sees people with food, with drink. That leads him to say, well, to some regard, God must be accepting you right now because he's giving you food and drink. Mm. Last question. Um, One of the points in the passage is that life is unfair and so this question is kind of coming from that angle, talk about injustice. And one of the application points, Lachlan, you gave was that, so we should rejoice in God's judgment. Now, apart from that, rejoicing in God's judgment and knowing he'll judge, in the meantime, do you have helpful tips for Christians grappling with experiencing injustice ourselves and also seeing injustice happen to others? Yeah. I, the first thing that comes to mind on this question is, the language in Peter, where he points us to Jesus. Um, I think it's Peter. Uh, And he talks about Jesus entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Just trying to flick open there and find that verse to make sure I'm not misquoting. Um, Do you know the verse I'm talking about? I think I know which one. Like he didn't, he was, he kept silent. Yeah, yeah, that's it. 1 Peter 2 verse 23. Yeah. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Uh, I think that's a great image, and Peter would call Christians to respond in that same way. There's an example for us of um, bearing up under injustice, knowing that God sees. So practically, can you just tell us what that means? So, well, in here it's saying... Do not revile in return. Do not threaten. So I guess one of the things is 
in terms of when we suffer, the immediate response, I think, naturally is we want revenge. We want to get the other person back. We want to show them. But the Bible is telling us to entrust ourselves to God, knowing that he is our judge. Mm. And he's the one that will give us justice. And I think Romans 12 also talks about that, right? Mm. It talks about God says, you know, vengeance is mine and Mm. I will repay. Mm. And so in response to that, it talks about feeding your enemy when they're hungry. Yes. My, my, um, the hesitation there was just to go, there are some situations of injustice that we might find ourselves under where the right practical response is to run away from that injustice. Yes, yes. And that's okay as well. That is an option to escape. Um, If you have the possibility, you know, you don't have to stick around being treated unfairly. Uh, there are other options and that's okay as well. Um, and sometimes there might be situations to call out the injustice for what it is. So I think of the book of Acts where you mm. get lots of examples of Christians being treated unjustly in society. Uh, and there's one point where Christians are put in prison yeah. unjustly and then the authorities want to release them quietly even though they were arrested publicly and the apostles at that point go, no, 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 you can't release us quietly you have to release us publicly to show that you were wrong in the first place to put us in here. Mm. So there's an example of something else that is acceptable uh, to, to show up the injustice for what it is. And I think Christians more generally in society, when we see or experience injustice, if you have the opportunity to show injustice for what it is and to work towards justice, yeah. do it. We are called to be people of justice. Yeah. Uh, come back to the Old Testament prophets who called Israel to, to operate justly all the time. Um, injustice was one of the huge things that Israel was critiqued for by the prophets. Yeah. Uh, and they were called to be a society where justice happened. And so I know great Christian lawyers who are working to see justice happen in countries all around the world, mm. international justice mission to, to remove corruption as they have ability to do that. Uh, so we can be advocates for justice. Um, and that's a great thing to give ourselves to, uh, with the knowledge that we will most likely never see justice happen everywhere all across the earth because human hearts are evil and full of corruption. And so someone will always find a way to be unjust, to hurt someone, to oppress someone. Uh, They'll be more and more creative as we try to remove injustice. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't seek it as we can Mm. in our own spheres. Mm. Yeah, and I want to push back a bit because you were saying about because I was saying we shouldn't seek vengeance and you were saying, but we should remove ourselves from that situation. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. No. In fact, I think they complement each other yeah. well. Like not seeking, I think, you know, I mean, one that kind of comes to my mind is, for example, domestic abuse. Mm. Um, in a situation where a spouse is being abused by another, um, loving them and not seeking vengeance does not look like continuing being oppressed and belittled um, by someone, uh, by the other spouse, because it's it's actually just giving them giving into their sinfulness. But if we actually love them, we should seek their their own reconciliation with God and mm. their own repentance, mm. because God will judge them for these mm. things. But it doesn't look like grabbing a knife and stabbing them no. as they try to hurt you. No. So that would be that would be trying to if you were doing something just to try to hurt them and to seek vengeance Mm. is a very different thing to seek their good Mm. um, by not condoning Mm. their sin Mm. Um, and as christians we should 
we should do, we should do that like the bible tells us if a brother or sister sins against you you should go and talk to them you should actually involve the church in all of this as well and so i think i think there's that element as well i think also in a uh, different realm that another great book that i enjoyed reading was shining like stars stories of the ifes movement mm. globally was that by lindsey brown I yeah say? i think yeah, he Lindsay pulled brown. it together and there are stories there from countries where corruption is rife and you know corruption and justice go hand in hand and christians making hard decisions to not get involved with corruption mm. at great cost you know university students not paying bribes to get their good marks even though it means they don't get the university degree um, so there's stuff like that where you go insofar as you have the decision the ability don't don't get involved with injustice don't be complicit within it yeah don't try and to I live think, out a just life yourself yeah that also i think aligns with work as well and thinking about how we work you mm. know we've known of someone who had been asked to do dodgy things at mm. work and decided to actually quit her job mm. because she couldn't in good conscience as a christian continue mm. in that work mm. so i think that's something to think about as well yeah. um even as we sort of entrust ourselves to God. Mm. So that's it for us this week for the extras. Um, We've tackled Ecclesiastes 9, thinking through death, thinking through how do we live in a world with injustice, thinking about what happens after we die. We hope it's been a helpful episode Um, and looking forward to this coming week when we're going to have our last sermon on Ecclesiastes. So I'll see you guys then. Bye.